I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where we're going. You this week, I'm chatting to Edward Perry, the founder and CEO of Cook. Founded in 1997, Edward had the genius idea of creating ready meals using the same ingredients and techniques that a good cook would use at home, resulting in convenient food that looked and tasted homemade. However, it was much harder to create a profitable business than he first thought, and Edward had to navigate a very bumpy road, where at one point he narrowly avoided losing the business altogether. 20 years on, his business is growing from strength to strength, with 80 shops around the UK. Not only has Cook been named as one of the top 100 companies to work for consistently, it's also one of the first B Corp businesses in the UK. I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Edward in his HQ in Sittingbourne, where I had a tour of his kitchens, met his team and the amazing chefs who prepare the cook meals. Edward's vision to use his business to help change the world is so inspiring and it's a podcast I know you'll love. such a pleasure being here in your wonderful cook kitchens and an honour to meet you. I know we had supper a long time ago actually yeah. at my house where we were talking about lots of other things so we didn't actually really get to talk enough about what you've built at Cook. I've had so many people tell me when I've let them know who I was going to interview today Tell me how much your food has helped them when they've gone through a tough time. And they have always mentioned your brand as their sort of saviour, that they're able to eat well, even when they're not feeling at their best. And obviously, for me, emergency dinner parties, you know, you've been part of my household for very many years. So I couldn't wait to talk to you today about the challenges that you've had during this what is a long journey actually when you think back to when you started so thank you for having me here today I'd love to open up by asking you to share your story about where it all began well thank you for coming and that's a very generous opening um just before I I suppose I tell you the story I think it's just this idea of food you know food is just a, a wonderful thing a wonderful business to be in because it both connects people and actually if you're making food with real integrity the nourishment it can actually provide 
to people if they're in distress or anything like that. So, it's, you know, thank you for saying that. It's great to hear. So story in a nutshell is my parents had a couple of coffee shops and out of that, a bakery business came out of that. My mother's best friend was a superb baker. And so she started making the cakes uh, for the coffee shops and then started selling them to other caterers, other coffee shops and stuff. And I left school and was the salesman. So I would travel around the southeast of England selling these cakes uh, to other coffee shops and stuff. And one of the jobs I did when I was 21 is I set up a small factory shop for them. It had two freezers in it, and it was selling chocolate roulades, raspberry pavlova rolls, banana cakes, chocolate cakes, that sort of thing, all looked homemade and tasted homemade. And within a year, we were selling about, it was just, it was on a grotty industrial estate in Maidenhead, and we were selling about 2,000 pounds a week. And I thought, you know, my mother, she always worked, and I'd sort of grown up with my mother once a week cooking batches of chili con carne or beef bourguignon, which she would then put into old ice cream tubs. And so we had a big chest freezer at home, and you'd open up the chest freezer, and there'd always be ice cream tubs with little white labels saying pork Dijon or beef bourguignon or whatever. And that's how we ate, and the food was always really good. And so I thought, well, if we could actually make the sort of food mum was making for our freezer and sell it alongside their cakes and puddings, we might have something that could work as a retail concept. So that's where the idea came from. Very much had its roots in my parents' business and the way they made food. And I spent the next four years being a salesman with this idea knocking around in, in my head. And I sat down with my parents when I was 25 and I said, look, I want to do this frozen casserole idea. And they said, look, it's too much for... You know, we don't know anything about making savoury food. If you want to do it, you need to leave and do it yourself. And as soon as they said that, it was like I knew immediately that was the right thing to do. And so they lent me £6,000. I borrowed 12000 off NatWest, 12000 off HSBC, I think it was. Um, didn't tell one bank about the other bank, set up a production business, set up a retail business, and off we went. So that was in March 97, opened the first shop in Farnham. And... You know, the one thing I think we had from the very beginning was a very clear idea of the kind of food we wanted to make. It was, you know, our founding statements to make food that looks and tastes homemade using the same ingredients and techniques a good cook would use at home. And, you know, that's the one thing that we had and the one thing we've still got that was central, which is sits right at the heart of the brand and who we are and what we are. However, I had no idea how difficult it would be to actually make the food look and taste homemade. So Dale, who was the chef who started it with me, you know, there have been so many massive pieces of luck along the way. And, you know, one of them was finding Dale. I never spoke to anybody else about doing it. It was only ever Dale. I kind of fell in love with him at the age of 25. He was a customer of mine uh, who I used to sell cakes to. And so I never spoke to anyone else. And, you know, from the first moment I met him, I just, I loved him. He was just, he was amazing. And it was because he was so brilliant and so talented that he figured out how to make the food taste nice. Because... It is really, really difficult making frozen food on any scale, taste, look and taste homemade. And when we started off, I just thought he would do it. He would just be able to do it. But it took years like your and mom. years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but on a bigger scale. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just mu it's really difficult because it's controlling water. And it's, you know, lots and lots of companies have sort of copied what we've been doing and tried and failed and stuff. And because it is really difficult. It looks like it should be simple, but it's not. And essentially, those first few years were just about hanging in there. It was hand-to-mouth existence, didn't keep any accounts, nothing like that, because I didn't know how to. I was good at working in the shop, Dale was good at making the food, but it was, it was chaos. It was like the Wild West. The nice thing about when you start when you're 25 and you don't have 
any real overheads, you don't have responsibilities, you can run things on a shoestring. So and that's what happened the first few years. And it was just hanging on long enough to make the food taste nice, get customers coming back and create a bit of me- momentum. But the critical thing that happened was in 2000. We had to move out of our first kitchen. We had no funding. We had no accounts. The whole thing was chaos. And my brother, who is 18 months younger than me, and he'd been at Cadbury's for five years, he'd taken over my parents' business, which was still quite small. There was a couple of coffee shops in the bakery. And he looked at what we were doing and said, look, I think it's got real, real potential. But you and Dale, frankly, are a couple of jokers. And what you really need is you need me. And you need a bit of infrastructure. You need a grown-up in the room. And so what we did is we merged my parents' business together with our little business, which at the time consisted of two shops and a kitchen. So from 2000, we sort of joined together and that's where we got some momentum and it sort of went from there, basically. And then we went bust, almost went bust in 2008, but that's another story. It's so interesting when you talk about your age and how young you were. People always shock when I tell them that I didn't go to university. I got a D in business studies, A levels, <laughs> and I had the University of Life, which was you know advertising at the age of seventeen. You know, you didn't go to uni, and you had your parents that ran that business. Do you think ultimately, when you now look back, that inspiration being all the way all around you, that freezer that you opened up, is it the the combination? I've heard you're very, very determined and resilient as well. So what did that come from your parents? Was it sort of were you getting a business school lesson almost just um, subconsciously as you grew up? Yeah. So I think it's a couple of things. One is growing up with Frankly, as you know, in a small business environment where my parents were struggling, I'm the eldest of four. Uh, whilst the coffee shops were really good, you know, it's really difficult to make ends meet running two relatively small coffee shops. You've got four kids. Dinner conversation was dominated by sandwich fillings and what cakes are selling and all of that sort of stuff and talking about customers. So it very much gets into your blood. And, you know, during the school holidays and stuff, we would work in the coffee shops. That's what you did. But I had this slightly um, odd existence because I had this growing up with the struggle of a small business, but I had a rich grandmother. And my rich grandmother paid for me to go to a posh private school, which is why I sound posh. You know, that's the only difference between me and Dale. He sounds common, I sound posh because I had a rich grandmother. And I was, (laughs) and I left school having, essentially, I was fed up with slightly being the poor kid in a rich environment. That's why I didn't want to go to university. And, And, you know, I suppose, truth be told, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Because there were, you know, inevitably kids at school who took the piss about, you know, their banker dads and lawyer dads and my dad who had a little coffee shop on the high street and stuff. And um, yeah, and it probably did leave a bit of a chip on my shoulder that felt I had something to prove. So yeah, that's where definitely some of the energy came from. And you fast forward and we're going to touch on a couple of points you made in your story, but... Fast forward today, and one of the things that I've found so fascinating about your business, and obviously you've been on this journey for a long time, is how today it feels so futuristic. So something that I don't think a lot of people know about is that you're a B Corp business. Can you tell me something about that? Because I think in the future, we're going to know a lot about it. But right now... I don't think it's something that we're all talking about around our dinner tables. Okay, before I sort of talk about the description, you know, what it means to be a B Corporation, which, you know, is something I and the business feel passionately about. I think one of the things that's important to provide context for this is that 
as one of the co-founders of Co, I basically get far too much credit for what the business is now. Um, you know, my brother who came on board in 2000, who I ran the business with for eight years, has been, you know, he was the one actually who brought the B Corporation movement over to the UK and is, is just unbelievably wow. progressive in terms of how he thinks about what business should be and the role of business. And also, from a culture point of view, my sister Rosie, who's now the managing director, who is as everyone here knows, who's really the boss, who really pulls the strings. And, you know, <laughs> the business actually has, since she took over 18 months ago, has reacted with indecent haste in how it's improved commercially it's, <laughs> to an embarrassing degree. Uh, so, I'm, so I'm merely, in many ways, the provider of a benign set of conditions for a lot of very talented people to do their stuff. But so, yeah, so the, so the B Corporation movement, though, is essentially a group of companies who are united in the belief that business should be used as a force for good. I think we live in a world where if you want to bring about any kind of societal change, governments can do a certain amount, but are horribly inefficient. Charities can do a certain amount, but inevitably there are good charities, there are not so good charities, but they're going to be limited in terms of what they can do. If we want to live in a better, fairer society, business, and critically, critically, the capital that sits behind business has got to start behaving more ethically and actually start considering the environment, the communities within which they operate and the employees in a much more conscious way than they're doing at the moment. I think too much business looks at sort of the whole CSR thing, you know, corporate social responsibility. I think too often that is putting lipstick on a pig. It's enough. There is, there is, it's a tick box. It's a tick box. There's nothing profound about it at all. What the B Corporation movement seeks to do is actually make something much more profound. So you can't become a B Corporation just because you like the idea that business should be used as a force for good. You have to go through, frankly, a ball ache of an acc accreditation process. It's really difficult to become a B Corporation. It usually takes any company two to three months to go through that accreditation process. It marks you and grades you in every element of your environmental performance, community performance, et cetera, et cetera. And it's difficult. And the thing I particularly like about the accreditation process, although it's difficult, they, they, they deliberately make it more difficult every two years. So mm. this is not about a movement to be inclusive of everyone. They, they think of it, the founders think about it as the arrowhead that is going to drive the change of what business should be in society. So they make it more difficult every two years. And then once you do become a B Corporation, if you do get it over that hurdle, um, you join a movement of like-minded businesses. So if you believe in the principle that business should be used as a force for good, now you can do your own thing and you can go and do whatever you're doing. But it's so much more powerful being with a group of like-minded businesses. Now, some will have a preference for environmental stuff. Others will have stuff, you know, like us. We, you know, we feel passionately about employing the underserved in the communities, people who've been to prison, that sort of stuff. People have their own preferences, but essentially you are with a like-minded bunch of people who believe in the same thing. And being part of a community is it's just so much more powerful than being a lone voice pissing in the wind, frankly. Um, so that's what B Corporations are all about. Tell me, is there a size of company that you have to be? Now, obviously, you've got this ball ache of a application process. So a small business would find that probably pretty hard to go through. And I'm assuming you have to have employees, right, to even... No. So, no, you, you don't have no, to... No, you can have... You can be down, You can be a sole trader and be a B Corporation. There's right. a, the, the nature of the accreditation process is different and simpler. Um, the so smaller yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can be a small business, yeah. decide you want to 
jump on this. Yeah. This is something you believe in and it's possible. It's, it's not nothing to do with your size. No, absolutely not. It's more the size of your purpose, uh, the size of your vision. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and ultimately, if you, if you believe in the principle that you want yeah. to use your business as a force for good, it's a fantastic community to join. And also the accreditation process is really helpful in helping you think about, oh, should I be pursuing this or should I pursue, be pursuing that? But if, if you're listening to this and are interested, B-Lab UK, who run the B Corporation movement in the UK, hold meetings all the time, uh, particularly in London, but all around the country. And I'll just, you know, go onto the B-Lab website and it, it can show you where you can go and meet people and Fantastic. how to find out more. Well, it was interesting because... When looking into this, there's only 2,441 companies across the globe who are a B corporation. And in the UK, there's only 150. Mm -hmm. So it's a really small amount, isn't it, of, yep. of companies who's, who have started to see this vision of what businesses, yep. uh, finances and the power of business and what can change. Yep. So it's brilliant that you're part of that 150. But I was also thinking, it's funny that you mentioned about your brother. So if we go back in time and we look at Cadbury, who is a complete hero of mine, right. I love what he created you know he created a village was it called Bourneville Bourneville yeah um, he created an infrastructure around his business and he ensured that his team were housed they were happy he built a community literally around his factory it really shows you how this simplicity this mission of creating good out of business has been seeded a long time ago but we lost our way. Completely. As you said, as time went on through the 20th century, the responsibilities of capital became completely disconnected from society. It became all about maximising financial return for a bunch of disconnected shareholders. Capital essentially has been behaving in, in many ways psychotically in, within companies and stuff. And actually, it, the, you know, I think the 21st century is about reclaiming what the responsibilities of what capital should all be about and and you know within the b corporation movement that, that that you know that responsibility of capital you know that's what sits at the heart of it and whilst still small you've got definitely got some of the most progressive companies in the world patagonia for example is a b corporation which is just the best company ever just uh, possibly the best book I've read in the last year is Let My People Go Surfing by, by the founder. It's, it's brilliant. Go and read that book. And also, you know, Innocent re re recently signed up in the UK, which is a very, very big deal for us because obviously they've been behaving ethically and trying to do the right thing for a very long time. So it's, you know, it's, it's coming. It's still small, but there is energy behind it. And, you know, there are lots of people that believe in this. So, you know, it's something. It's, it's just, it is just brilliant. And I just couldn't agree with you more. You know, we have a responsibility as business owners Owners, to take the opportunities that we have and do something that is greater than ourselves. Business leaders, however small, mm -hmm. uh, one man band, you're still a business leader. Businesses just don't exist in a bubble. But if you can be specific in what you want to change and you mm -hmm. can put all that power and energy of your team of one or your team of 50, or I know you have 700 here in different ways, it's it's small still in terms of the globe, of but actually yeah. it is. it can really change um, communities. Mm -hmm. And I think back to when um, I started Not in the High Street with Sophie, when I look now that 600 million has gone into this group of, which was a hidden army of small businesses. It's purpose 
full led business. And so it's just fantastic to be speaking to you. Tell me, do you find people have a degree of um, cynicism when promoting that you're running a business that does good? Or do customers believe that you can be profitable, be a company and give back? What's been your feedback? Um, I we've seen remarkably little cynicism. Um, I was just reading actually just before this interview, we put something on our e-newsletter, which we send out twice a week. Um, I get them. And, and we told the story about Rene, who's uh, somebody who had been at prison, who we employed, and we explained how we've got this program going on, and you know we've recently taken on our fiftieth person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we told Rene's story, and um, I was curious to see what would come back, and we stuck it on Facebook, and I've just seen, just literally, just read all this positive feedback from customers reading about this story. And I think, you know, it's absolutely typical of the kind of feedback that we get. The lack of cynicism, hardly see it at all. And you know what? If it comes, couldn't give a monkeys. You know, just couldn't give a monkeys. If people want to be cynical, people are going to be cynical. You know, as long as you believe and the people who work, you work with believe, that's all that matters. When you think about smaller businesses, let's say, who are maybe building a brand or a team of 10, a team of 20 who have done a year's journey, they're getting there, but they're not quite there. And they they listen to this and they go, what is our purpose? What is that thing that's underneath us? Do you have any advice about how to, because I believe you can retrospectively look at it. I don't believe you can just say, oh, that's not us. You know, when you think of what Unilever has done and things, you know, the the changes that you can make, however yep. big, you can yep. still make them. Do you have any advice? Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure it's advice, but I can tell you what happened to us, which was, you know, we almost went bust in the recession of 2008. And we sort of dug ourselves out of it. And we got to about 2011 and things were beginning to go quite well again. And, you know, we, we realized we were going to survive. And more people were joining the business. And we realized, I think at the time, we had about 250 people, something like that. And we thought, what we need to do is we need to write down our values. And so it took us about six months to work out. And it wasn't a question of what do we want our values to be. It was understanding what they already are and then articulating them, getting them written down. And that that has remained absolutely central to our culture. We just go back to our values over and over and over again. We do recognition through the values. It's just they are everything within the business. So we got those sorted. And then we thought about six years ago, five years ago, we thought, gosh, what, what, why do we really want to do this? Because we're passionate about staying independent. We've got no VC involved or anything like that. We're in this for the long term. But why? You know, we knew we wanted to be, we believed in doing the right thing and all the rest of it. The first step of it was we saw a, a TED talk by Simon Sinek, Start With Why? And then we read the book and that provided a fantastic... It's fantastic, st- isn't it? Yeah, yeah. starting place. So simple. And you know. so how many people don't ask themselves why? Yeah, absolutely. Both you know, personally yes, and as yes, a business. Yes. So I'd say if you're looking to, you know, work out what the purpose is, you know, go to Simon Sinek. It's a really good starting place. And I think it's not about going, oh, you know, it, it's not about sort of future gazing. It's James, our brand director, described it as archaeology. It's actually it's discovering what's already there. 
So I don't think you need to invent it. It's working out actually what's already there. And we started, as I said, five or six years ago. And the truth of it is that we have iterated and iterated and iterated. So we came up with something after about six months uh, that bears absolutely no resemblance to what we have now. So about a year ago, we ended up with a framework that we suddenly went, this is it. Finally, we, wow. have, we have got here. And so I think it's this thing. Don't, don't think that if you start that process, you need to arrive at the you know, final destination straight away. It takes time to work it out. It's, you know, this is profound stuff. So embrace the process of iteration and you will eventually arrive somewhere where you feel completely comfortable. And so underpinning all of this must have also been the fact that you were going to emotionally engage, engage with your consumers on another level. One of the things I've loved and being a a fan and a, a customer of yours for so long is the fact that forever you've had the sticker who tells you who cooked their meal, the name, the signature. You know, this little detail that you, I don't know when you started that or if that's always been part of what you've done, linking that there was something behind this brand, that this wasn't a faceless corporation. Have you found that these details have mattered along the journey to allow you the permission to be the B corporation that you are? I think all brands are built on details, lots and lots and lots of details. Brands are how they make you feel. If you're operating a brand, you want your customer to feel good about you, one way or another, however you do it. And that's made up of lots and lots of little things. It's never done by one massive advertising campaign and stuff. It's built of little things, but they've got to be real. They've got to be substantial. So, and, you know, whether it's the chef's signature or, you know, I don't know, how, we, how you do the shop design or how, how you give out food in the shops, making sure everyone who comes into a shop is offered a taster and that sort of thing, which is really difficult because you have to get everyone in the shop's hearts and minds bought into the idea they've got to offer food. But it's lots and lots and lots of details underpinned by culture. Um, and I suppose just having people right across the business that just really passionately care about it. Because if you haven't got that culture and that culture of care, it really doesn't matter how clever your strap line is or anything else. It's all it's all hot air, really. It's you know ultimately brands can only built by be built by a culture of caring. Would you go as far to say as your sort of brand marketing department is everybody here? Your guys in finance are they on brand? Do Absolutely. they believe? And that's why whoever's receiving the bill or invoice from that finance person is getting a little bit of a cook feel. They, absolutely. Of course they should. Everyone is responsible for the brand. It's not the brand department. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you ran your business in exactly the same way. Everyone has got to believe the same thing. Everyone's, yeah, it's, you're all in it. Everyone is responsible for the brand. So from this brand that's brought customers in, as you said, giving them that feeling, as I mentioned before, when I spoke about how I was going to come and meet you today and how everyone I spoke to offered up um, a little story. Just as I got in the car, someone said, oh, I was going through a nightmare. My um, father had cancer. I needed this Christmas. I knew it was going to be the last. And um, so I bought my whole Christmas meal through cook it allowed me just to put it into the oven and I concentrated on making memories you must hear these sort of stories all the time do you have any that you can share oh gosh off, off the top of my head no you, you're um, you're very flattering and it, but you know um, 
it's obviously nice here, though, sir. I can't. I mean, gosh, I should be able to think of something well, off the no, top of my I head, mean, shouldn't I? But it's you, you do hear lots of very people are very, very kind and very, very generous. But I go back to what I said right at the beginning. We're in a fortunate position where we're feeding people. Yeah. We're doing the most yep. intimate, well, the second most intimate thing you can probably do as a business. <laughs> and 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 it's you know we're just enormously privileged to be in a position where we can help people and you know people enjoy what we do so and as you said it came through this culture that you've bred talking about culture from the names of the chefs on the meals to how we've just spoken about your team why is culture um so important because well the reason why it's important is that at the end of the day we are but a simple frozen food business. We're selling shepherd's pie, chicken pies, chocolate cakes and chocolate roulades. You know, there is nothing to stop anyone doing what we do. Uh, it's not rocket science. It's, uh, it's home cooking on a big scale. And then, you know, we've got 90 shops with 18 freezers in them. There is the thing that enables us to grow and thrive. The only thing is our culture. That is the thing that enables our food to taste different for the service in the shops to be better, the hospitality that we offer, the care that's taken uh, in the office here, in everything from accounts to brand. It's all culture. That's the Culture is our competitive advantage. It's the only thing. Take away the culture and the food would be crap. Mm. The hospitality would be crap. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it is the life force that makes everything else possible. And I've read that at Cook, you call your HR department your people team. Yeah, you of know, course. Uh, well, you say, of course, you know, HR doesn't everyone I, I don't think so no, actually, Edward. No, they should. I, yes I they know should. I know loving people right it's yeah. it's a great name for your department and I love how on your site you're open you say we reject the idea that employees simply exist as a resource to be drained by a company in pursuit of profit taking care of people is the right thing to do and we found that in return they help take care of cook so it's great but I know from experience you know it's pretty hard to create and then it's incredibly tough to maintain especially as you scale so how have you created lasting company culture um i got my parents to have my sister four years after i was born and essentially i've delegated (laughs) it pretty much wholesale to her because she's a total genius at it um and she's managing director and she's you know i said before i provide benign conditions she she is Amazing. And she has dr- driven a lot of that sort of stuff. So, I get, you know, all credit to her, the, you know, and, and everyone here. So I, I don't want I, I really shouldn't be t- taking credit for that. But in how do we sustain it? It's one practical thing that springs to mind is every year we do the Sunday Times Best Companies to Work For survey. We've looked at various different ways of measuring employee engagement, but we still think that's the best one. And whilst there are other ways of doing it, by actually making yourself keep score of where you are in terms of engagement it forces you to look at certain things and every year we do it we find things that are not good within the business that we didn't otherwise know so I think if you're very serious about culture and trying to build culture then find a way of measuring it whether that's the Sunday Times best companies or something else but if you're not measuring it you're not taking it seriously. And you also touched on you've had seriously major ups and quite a lot of downs, probably a lot more downs than the ups, through funding, um, hair-raising moments with cash flow. Can you just touch on that? Obviously, cash being king. You've not gone for investment. You don't have that backing. 
So tell me, can you touch on those hair-raising moments and then what it's actually now today taught you? Yeah, the the Nadir was um, one day in November 2008. Um, after the financial crash and Lehman Brothers had gone down, we just expanded massively, borrowed a huge amount of money, expanded in an incredibly irresponsible way, which was entirely my fault. And opened lots of shops in rubbish locations. Lehman Brothers went down. We dropped 10% in sales mm. immediately, then dropped another 10% over the next three months. All our cash flows were out the window. And we realized that if we didn't do something radical, we'd be going, we were out of business in about four months' time. And I remember the, the weekend where uh, we had a meeting about a prepack administration. I, it was a sense of... It all happened so fast because when mm. it all, all just happened so, so quickly. And I remember I couldn't eat, uh, I couldn't sleep. Um, and I just couldn't believe it was happening, that I was actually having a real life yeah. conversation about putting this business. At, at it that was stage, real. It was real. This is happening. I've been doing it for 10 years. I thought we were just about to become successful, having struggled for 10 years. And actually, we were just about to go out of business. I was going to be another one of those people who had almost made it. And it was, I, it was just as desperate as desperate can be. And I think, you know, we, we spent two years sort of just about surviving. And, you know, one of the things I'm very proud of and very glad of that is that we didn't take outside investment at a time when we could have done. We could have made our pain go away by selling a big slug of the business for not very much. But we were conscious at the time that that would compromise our ability to run the business in the way that we want to, wanted to, and, and, you know, and we do now. So thank heavens for that. But I suppose the big lesson of it um, is cash, just cash, cash, cash. It's unbelievable how many businesses who think they're doing okay do not have proper controls over their cash. And we're fortunate. We've got a guy called, here called Jeff Turner, who was our head, head of finance there, and he's still here. And he's just, he had his wiggly line. We called it the wiggly line, which was, which tracked the cash day by day. And we all worshipped at the altar of the wiggly line. And in the wiggly line, we trusted. And every business, you know, of whatever size, whatever perceived success should have their wiggly line that they worship at. Because it's everything, everything, everything. And so how did you get through it then? So you were just nearly, yeah. you know, on the brink. Yeah. So the wiggly line managed to just have funds at the lowest of the points of the wiggle or yeah so so we so the way we squeeze through is we cut every single cost out of the business that could be cut out we had to make people redundant which was brutal um really really awful we had we every single cost that could go so window cleaners in the shops for example mm -hmm. went if it wasn't nailed down it went the only thing we never compromised on was quality of ingredients coming in through the door because I think if you do that, you compromise your right to exist because you're compromising the brand. So we didn't do that, but everything else went. And basically, we just held on and held on and held on. So it's just, it is just about perseverance at that point. You just, you think, oh, just, and so many businesses, I think, are like that. You struggle and you struggle and you just got to be able to hold on long enough to see the better days come. And so you talked about your 90 stores, and I know that you have stores and you franchise. 
has franchising moved on with the high street changing as it is? Does that business model still work for you? Yeah, so a combination of things there. I think franchising has worked absolutely fantastically for us on a financial level and post the crisis in 2009 we opened quite a lot of franchises quite quickly because it you know because we didn't have any spare capital and financially it was great and we've still got about off the top of my head about 33 stores that are franchised but we actually stopped doing new franchises in about 2013 2014 I think largely because, and, and let's be clear, the, the franchises who are still with us are fantastic and, and they run brilliant businesses and stuff. The bottom line is that we are, we, I, slight control freaks and actually like to run stuff ourselves. And actually, I think it's difficult to run a retail business with both franchises and company owned. You're either a franchise operation, a la Domino's, or a company-owned operation. And I think just as far as our DNA is concerned, we're more suited to being a company-owned store. So that's that's the future from a retail perspective. But in terms of the split between home delivery, oh gosh, it's changing really, really quickly. So, you know, um, our online business is just going, going through the roof. More and more people want it delivered. Click and collect is going up, which suits us as a business very well. I think the the whole demise of the high street thing is completely overdone. Um, there are clearly certain categories of retailer that are in trouble from the likes of Amazon and what have you. I think there is something slightly 20th century about a lot of supermarket shopping experiences, which is just a bit depressing. And I think they need to figure out how to reinvent themselves. But generally, there's there's so many good retailers out there that are doing well. And I think it's just you've got to have imagination. You've got to provide customers with a bit of experience. You've got to provide great service. You know, it's, it's old fashioned things. If you do that, then you will find an audience. I couldn't agree with you more. I think small has a lot to do with that. I think actually bringing back the independence more. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer like you. And, and generally then, so when you look at your future and you're talking about, you know, you've got no issue then with the high street, what's the future vision for Cook? You must have to keep up with um, the dietary changes. You know, everyone in my office has turned vegan just yep. overnight. Yep. Um, how, and, and not just the dietary, but the, just the vision of Cook. So, so for example, on, a, on the food side of things, I mean, you, you talk about the veganism and stuff, which is, so we've set ourselves a target by uh, 2020 of having 20% of our food is sales of vegetarian, which means doing a huge amount of innovation that commercially doesn't necessarily stack up. You go, look, this is where, this is where the world is going. Therefore, we have to, we have to go along with that, along, even yeah. if in the short term, commercially, it doesn't make sense. So it's decisions like that. I think... We've set ourselves the goal of growing at about 15% a year for the next five years, which would double the size of the business from about 60 to about 120. We can do that without borrowing stupid amounts of money, preserve our independence, but at the same time provide a level of growth that's stimulating and it's interesting. You know, as a business, you've got to be moving forward, providing opportunities for people within the business. And we think that is about the right level. I mean, it's quite bullish, but it's sort of doable. So we're building a new kitchen at the moment because we're bursting at the seams here. So there's loads of challenges, but that's, that's the sort of thing. And at the same time, also making sure that we really judge our success on other metrics beyond what profit we've made. You know, what exactly is our environmental uh, performance? What exactly is our 
performance in terms mix of, of KPIs. The mix of KPIs and making them just as important because I am, you know, I I am still a bit of a dinosaur in many ways. I'm still pretty obsessed with actually the sales performance and the EBITDA performance, but actually it's making sure these other things live and breathe and have just as much visibility within the business and to our stakeholders, our customers and suppliers as the other stuff. And so your parents inspired you. Do you think your kids are going to be interested in um in uh, joining oh, I, can't, Cook. I can't even make them go to bed at night. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I got, um, my eldest is 13. Um, I got I got four, 13, 11, 8, and 3. Um, and, you know, def- there, there's some interest. But, you know, I, I would never in a million years try and proactively encourage them to come into the business. You know, if they, if they were interested, you know, great. But, you know, my sister's got three. My other brother's, he's got three. Who knows? Who knows? They'll Who do knows? whatever they want to do. I, I hear mums and dads, I, the reason I ask is I hear so often parents who run small businesses um, feeling incredibly guilty, actually, about the lack of time or the juggle that they face. And so I always just try and change that point of view, which is actually about you're providing your child potentially with a career. You're inspiring them in a way that maybe the education system isn't in sense of like your parents did, this sort of subconscious level of business that's coming through. And actually, it's to drop that guilt, because I think we're doing a great service for the young. When we think, you know, 40% of employees will be freelance by 2020. My son, who's also 13, he's probably going to not ever have a career like myself. He's going to be his own brand. He's going to have different career points. You pretty much need to know how to run a business then, you know, even if your business is just yourself. I agree with that. And I think, you know, self-reliance is is a really important thing. And I think, you know, if you are a child of someone who runs a business, you see that. You see a combination of, you know, you've got to be responsible. You've got to take responsibility for yourself. You have responsibility to other people. So all of that, all of that can only be a good thing. So I always use the analogy that uh, running your own business is like uh, one heck of a roller coaster. So can I ask you what your proudest, your highest moment has been? So you asked me to think about this before, before and I couldn't think of anything at all. And then, then I thought, you know, there is one moment that stood out where I was probably, it's one of the only times you have, I've ever felt properly proud because you, I think when you run a business, you spend your whole life truth be told, full of angst, full of, you know, looking at everything that's not Could right and you're miserable. The, the whole <laughs> thing is no, people go, oh, it must be great being your own boss. And you go, no, it's miserable because you're just so self-critical. But the one moment that's actually we don't really do awards or anything like that. I haven't done for years and years and years. But back in 2005, we entered the Retail Week Rising Star of the Year Award, slightly on a whim. And we won. And I didn't think for a million years. We only had, I think, back then about 12 shops. And I didn't think for a million years we'd won. And it was like, oh, you know, by that stage, we'd been going for eight years and it'd been really, really difficult. And then to go to this big sort of glittery ceremony and get a gong from the from the retail business, um, it, it, that moment in time, it meant the world to me. And it was, Whoa. you know, that was a real, you know, yeah. apart from that, it's all been miserable. <laughs> And so if it's all been miserable, you won't have a problem telling me what your lowest point of that roller coaster has been. The lowest point was definitely that meeting about the prepack administration. That was a very visceral, conscious, oh my God type moment. This could not be any worse than it is right now. So that, that was definitely the lowest moment. 
Thank you, Edward. Thank you so much for your time. And it draws us to the end of this inspiring conversation of inspiration. Before the podcast, I asked you if you would prepare a letter, a note to your younger self. And hopefully it allowed you, I know we've done a couple of emails, it allowed you a moment to maybe reflect and think back um, to this whole epic journey you've had. And what would you tell your younger self? And I obviously don't know what you've written. It's my favourite part. But before you start, thank you so much for sharing part of your soul with us. Thank you for coming, Holly. And thank you for all those nice things you said about the business. (laughs) You're very welcome. So I've written it to my 25-year-old self because that's how old I was when I started the business. Dear Ed, I write with no expectation that you will listen or absorb anything I'm saying as you seem to have all the answers. The good news and the bad news is that you're going to find out you know less and less as you get older. That will make you a better person, but you'll have to learn to embrace the uncertainty that comes with that. While you feel you have a point to prove, what you don't appreciate, and you should, is that from a relationship perspective, you have been born with the most enormous silver spoon in your mouth. Mum and Dad are the most incredibly wise and kind parents, and your three siblings are truly remarkable in every way and they will play a massively important role in your life, both personally and professionally, as you move forward. You should be more aware and grateful for the family you were born into. You have already won the lottery. You currently think that if you hit a certain sales number or open a certain number of shops, then that will bring you the happiness and peace of mind that you seek. It won't. You will hit these targets and you will still feel exactly the same. Live each day in the present, for the day is all you have. Don't think that you will find your satisfaction through external achievement. Find your peace in each day and ride high on the small moments in life. Keep a gratitude diary to remind yourself how lucky you are. It really helps. The Beatles were right. It's only love with a capital L and the quality of the relationships that you have around you that can bring happiness. Love, Ed. P.S. I'm afraid that most of the advice just offered still applies to your 47-year-old self. Sorry about that. Thank you so much. Thank you. The milestones. Keep hold of those milestones and and look around you because that's probably one of the greatest things that you've achieved. But thank you so much for sharing that. It's been a pleasure, Holly. Thanks thank a lot. You. Thank you. Thanks, Nat West, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub, which is full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown Find that all the things that I have said will come to when you are lying.